Let's open our precious, inspired, and preserved Word of God to the Gospel of John. The Gospel written by the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple who laid on his bosom at supper. If you want to know about Jesus Christ, then you should want to hear the observations, inspired observations they are, of the man so close to the Lord Jesus. A man committed to truth, hated error, very severe, precise in his definition of terms, especially in his epistles. John chapter 2, we have come into this house to hear the word of the Lord. My job description is easy, it's to preach it. Your job description is pretty easy, and it's to hear it and receive it with a ready mind. And go home and search it out to make sure that I've told you things that are out of the scriptures and not out of my head. And there is plenty of pages of outline for you to see exactly why we said what we said. Lord, have mercy upon us. I thank thee, Lord, for the men that have gone before me. And I thank thee for our son and brother Jonathan, who had and has a better reason to say what he said than anyone else sitting in this room. May God give you the fullest confidence in what you taught us. Amen. And we'll celebrate your small victories with you. Amen. And we'll look for the end of the battle. Amen. The war. By God's grace. Amen. John chapter 2. Let me read to you verses 13 through 17 and spend a few minutes there and then get to the last section beginning at verse 23. Verse 13 of John 2. And the Jews' Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence. Make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The disciples saw something that they hadn't seen before, and that was a one-man wrecking crew of a very large, magnificent temple against hundreds and thousands of Levites, priests, and others that encouraged and allowed this abuse of the house of God. They hadn't seen the like of it. These poor little fishermen that were used to sitting in small boats on a small lake called the Sea of Galilee were witness to the Son of God manifesting His glory in a different way. But the Holy Spirit gave them a perspective on it that we don't want to pass over too quickly, and so I have to come back to it so that we can spend a couple of minutes on it. They remembered by Holy Spirit power 
because these men couldn't remember anything of value until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, unless it was revealed to them from heaven. And I do them no harm, because we know that without God's mercy to us, we can't remember either. But this is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it was even harder for them. When it says in verse 17, and it's the verse I want, His disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. There's three things in that verse that I want us to remember before we go forward. And that is the word zeal, thine house referring to God's temple, and being eaten up by such zeal. Let's find where it was written. It is Psalm 69 and the ninth verse. Last Lord's Day, in trying to recall that place from memory, I knew it was Psalm 69. I knew it was 8 or 9. I said 8 first. Someone in the audience said 9. I corrected myself. I use verse 8 because verse 8 is the verse you want to remember against Catholics who say that in the New Testament, when it says Jesus had brethren, they were only his cousins. So you go to verse 8 of Psalm 69 to find out that they were the children of his mother. Now if you have children of your mother, they are not your cousins. Or your family is more twisted than anyone else has ever seen. Let's forget that thought. Let's get verse 9. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and we will not leave off the second half. And the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. The abuse that Jesus Christ took for cleansing the temple, as we just heard from Jonathan, I believe that's where I just heard it, those reproaches fell upon the Lord Jesus Christ because those were men that did not fear God, they did not love God, and they had reproached God, which this verse is saying in the second half, but now those reproaches fell upon Jesus because Jesus was standing as the Son of God and the ambassador from God to defend the worship of God. And if you stand as an ambassador of God or to defend the worship of God, reproaches are going to fall upon you that are actually reproaches against God. To Moses, God said, their rejection of you, Moses, is really a rejection of me. Their dislike of you, Moses, is really a dislike of me. We should not mind such reproaches. We should embrace such reproaches. When someone wants to make fun of us because we're standing for the right and true way of God, that is a blessing. Psalm 69.9. I hope that you'll remember it. You probably have cross-references in your Bible that tell you that John 2.17, the quote there can be found in Psalm 69.9. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Back to John chapter 2. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. It's quoted in the New Testament several times. And it applies to the Lord Jesus Christ in those couple of verses more specifically than it could apply to David, though it did apply to David loosely. The second point I want to make is zeal. And you've heard about zeal in this church. We have a little chariot with Jehu and Jehonadab in it somewhere around here because we like Jehu. Jehu. 
because he zealously purged Israel from Baal worship when called upon to do so by God. Zeal means intense ardor in the pursuit of some end. Passionate eagerness in favor of a person or cause. Enthusiasm as displayed in action. I love all three of those clauses defining zeal. Do they define you? I'm going to read them again to you. What does zeal mean? That four-letter word that we hardly use in our common speech, except in this church. But outside this church, you don't hear it. Here it is again. Intense ardor in the pursuit of some end. Passionate eagerness in favor of a person or cause. Enthusiasm as displayed in action. Let's be zealous for the house of the Lord like Jesus was zealous for the house of the Lord. David had great zeal for the cause of God. When he came to the battlefield and heard Goliath opening his ugly mouth and blaspheming the God of Israel, he looked around and he he said, Isn't anybody going to do anything? Is there not a cause? There was zeal in him. There was intense ardor to do something. There was extreme and passionate eagerness in the favor of a cause for God. There was enthusiasm, and he was about to display it in action by running to meet that uncircumcised cyclops and take his head off. Are you that way? For this house. This is the house of the New Testament, but that gets me to another point. Let's stay with the word zeal. Jehu, it says, he drove his chariot furiously. He was known by the cloud of dust piling out from behind his chariot. The, The Holy Spirit mentions this because that was his reputation that everything he did, he did with intensity. And he showed that kind of zeal in obliterating Baal worship in Israel. He went into the house of Baal in the vestments of a priest of Baal. He told Israel in a written letter, I'm going to serve Baal much. He offered a sacrifice on the high altar of Baal. And then he killed every single one of them and turned the temple of Baal into a draft house or public toilet to this day. For all of you men, you can imagine the wonderful privilege of entering the temple of Baal after that day. Glory to God. That was The Lord loved what Jehu did. The Lord reserved a couple of some of the most special verses in the Bible about Jehu doing exactly what was in the heart and mind of God and doing it very well. David wrote of God, consuming zeal for God's word against enemies. Look at Psalm 119 as we think upon zeal for a few minutes before we examine your faith. Psalm 119. And verse 139, here's David's zeal in another direction. This is David's zeal. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Notice, it's going to be eaten up in just a few words, but here it's consumed me, which is a a synonym for being eaten up by something. It's to be consumed by passion towards something. My zeal hath consumed me. Because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. 
he saw the disobedient and the wicked among the Israelites. And his zeal consumed him because he was going to stay obeying God's words. And we want our zeal to do that. You know, David had zeal for the house of the Lord. Paul, when he was in Athens, when Paul was in Athens and he saw the city wholly given to idolatry, what does it say? His spirit was stirred in him. I mean, he was stirred up. This is ridiculous. This is the place of the center of learning of earth. And these idiots are worshiping idols. He went into the marketplace and he reasoned every single day with anyone that would come and try to engage him in debate about the idiocy of their form of worship. And he preached Christ to them. And when they heard about a man being resurrected from the dead, they took him to Mars Hill. But that is, that's what happens to godly men when they're around the wicked. They don't join the wicked. They don't make friends with the wicked. They don't coddle the wicked. They don't say, have a good day to the wicked. They can't stand the wicked. And we don't want to stand the wicked. We want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're examining His zeal. Epaphras, an elder of the church at Colossae, was very fervent and zealous. The Bible tells us so much so that he was nearly ill because of it. That's truly being eaten up by zeal. How great is your zeal for the preservation and prosperity of this local church? Do you compare to Jesus? You confessed His name, and you were baptized in His name. Do you look like Him? How fervent and passionate are you for every stone and the overall house? The disciples showed Jesus the goodly stones of the temple built by Zerubbabel and Herod the Great. The stones of a New Testament church are its individual members. And we should want to polish each one of them. You can't come in here and leave. You can't come in here without pursuing other people and leave. You're a loser. You don't have zeal, and there's no evidence you're saved. The love of the brethren is the greatest evidence of eternal life. Attendance is not evidence of anything. We have a temple. The stones are multiplying. The work is harder for the few that put forth the effort. It needs to be spread among the whole congregation. Every joint and every part needs to be contributing by looking out every other part and joint and serving them. Can it be said that you are addicted to the ministry of the saints? If you're not, why not? You're too busy? I would love to see the use of your 168 hours because you're wasting about a 100 of them or 80 of them or 50 of them. Come on, folks. We're talking about zeal. I can't talk about zeal in some milk toast, effeminate, lackadaisical, compromising, average being. It, as long as I'm average in the church, I look okay. Jesus was an average. David was an average. They were exceptions. And a church with less than a full body of exceptions is a disappointment. Because we're all capable of being exceptional. We have the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have the wonderful example of God's Word. And God in His providence has convicted us to make these themes for our church. Measure yourself. Your passion. How passionate are you for this place? 
your prayers for it, your preparation before you enter it, your participation in its activities, your punctuality of being early, your provoking others to love and to good works, your praise of God in the midst of it, your perseverance in the truth that we hold, your peacemaking among all members, your protection of the weak. We can do it. The bar is high. So you want to be a low jumper. You went to the track coach in your high school and said, I would like to join the track team and be a low jumper. That's what some of you look like. You want to be a high jumper. We want the bar high. The Lord has set the bar high. John 2.17 The zeal of thine house. Let's think a moment for the house. It's God's house. The New Testament is the local church. It's the house of God. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 The Apostle Paul wrote Timothy and he laid out all these minute instructions of how to take care of everything from doctrine to heretics to widows. And he said, but if I tarry long, I want to come and see you, Timothy, my son in the faith, my favorite minister. I want to come and see you, but if I tarry long, 1 Timothy 3.15, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. And these are New Testament local church duties. These are not duties that you do among churches. These are local church duties. One church does not support the widows in another church. One church does not produce ministers for another church, but within that church, in these cases that are described here, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's the local church. The local church is a whole lot more than that. But all I want right now is the house of God. David had zeal for the house of God. Jacob did. Moses did. David did. Solomon did. Zerubbabel did. Jesus did. We want to have that zeal for the house of the Lord. And this is the house of the Lord, a New Testament church. Don't dream of David or Solomon's temple. We Gentiles are it. In Acts chapter 15, the only church council that counts The apostles and elders all came together in Jerusalem after Paul and Barnabas came down from the church at Antioch. They all got together. They heard about Peter and the conversion of the Cornelius Gentile family. They heard from Paul and Barnabas about the great things God had done among the Gentiles under their ministries. And then James drew a conclusion from the book of Amos. This is fulfilling the prophecy that I will build again the tabernacle of David. The house, kingdom, and worship of David was rebuilt by Jewish apostles turning the world upside down in the first century and converting our brethren. We have that house. And it's got goodly stones. They're living stones. So much better than a piece of granite or marble. They're living stones. And the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. So let's not dream about that. Dispensationalists know that the verse I just read you is the most important verse in the Bible about their schemes. 
Acts 15 and verse 16. Most important verse in the Bible. But it crushes their schemes. Because James said it's being fulfilled right now. They don't think it's fulfilled yet. They think that we're in an interregnum. We're in an interruption. We're in something God didn't even see in the Bible, nor prophesy of it, and that's the church age. And we're waiting for Jesus to come. We're waiting for a tribulation so Jesus can come again the third time. Then we're waiting for this millennium. Oh, then we get Acts 15 and verse 16. James said, it's right now, the conversion of us Gentiles. hath eaten me up. The zeal of thine house. Zeal is intensity. Everything we, sh- we do should be rather intense as Christians. Your work ethic should be intense because Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. But when we find to do something for the house of the Lord, that's more important than anything else we do. And we should really do that with Great might hath eaten me up. Is it right for a child of God to be consumed by zeal? The greatest child of God there ever was and ever shall be, the Son of God himself, was eaten up by zeal. He was consumed by it. I would say the answer to that question should probably be yes. That we should be consumed by zeal. David was. How many people... If they had an idea, I'd like to build God a temple. Nathan comes in and says, God doesn't want you to build a temple. He'll have your son build it. Don't worry about it. How many people would say, well, I tried. And Lord, it's the thought that counts, right, Lord? It's the thought that counts. You guys all have good thoughts about being here today. You're warming foam rubber. You're here. Let's give him more than that. David said, then I'll pay for it. Now, that's really painful. When you pay for it, and you don't get to build it, and you don't get to dedicate it. Solomon had all the fun, and David had all the pain. If David were here, what would he say? No, I had all the fun, and poor Solomon had to build the thing. I had all the fun of gathering it together, because if you read some of David's statements about the gathering of the money for building that temple, he was beside himself. He had a prayer in First Chronicles 28 and 29 where he begged God to keep the zeal for giving forever in the hearts and imaginations of the Lord's people because it was overwhelming him. He was trying to outgive the whole nation out of his personal stores, and he was having difficulty doing so. Zeal for God's house. Should it eat, it, eat us up? Yes, it should. How passionate are you in anything and everything for this local house of God? I'm going to share some numbers with you in the second assembly. But it's quality that counts, not quantity. We want the quality of our church to be such that the stones are goodly and pleasing in the sight of God. Never forget the Lord's zeal to Herod's temple demands your zeal to something far better than that monstrosity of stone compared to the temple of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 3. This is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Not your bodies. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Right, Marianne? 1 Timothy 3, 16 is the church, is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And what will happen to any man that defiles 
this temple. Him shall God destroy. New Testament. I speak the truth of God's word. Verses 18 through 22 in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 verses 18 through 22 are Jesus distracting and diverting the Jews who without faith, love, or fear of God were questioning Him about His authority cleansing the temple. They didn't care about the temple. They didn't care about the worship of the temple. They cared who didn't have a business license to go about doing this. And so Jesus did not answer them. Jesus distracted them. Jesus confounded them. Jesus angered them. And they're going to bring this up again in His trial that He said that He could destroy the temple in three days and rebuild it. Because what? where was He standing when He said, destroy this temple? He was standing in the temple. So the demonstrative adjective, this, what did it mean to them? The building that He was standing in. I taught all this last Sunday. And I taught it to you again on a Wednesday evening because I believe in repetition. That God sent a lying spirit to Ahab and to Zedekiah and to the 400 prophets of Baal. And Jesus Christ diverted their attention and angered them. And righteously so. They did not deserve the truth. He was simplistic and surface. In the sense that His words, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, was describing His resurrection. That's simple and surface level. Lesson to be learned for us. He was doing it to divert them. It's hard and deep when we realize that Jesus withheld understanding from them by confusing them with His choice of words. That's a deeper doctrine. And it's a harder doctrine. But we embrace and love both in this church. Most ministers can't even see the second lesson. But we see it. And we know that if we're not careful, Jesus can divert and distract us. Let's now get to verse 23. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Amen and amen. These words are sober. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, because He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. Our historian, our brother John, has already recorded back in verse 13 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem in altitude for this Passover. Here he mentions that in the feast day something took place. The lamb was eaten on the 14th. There was a feast day on the 15th which was a Sabbath day. You weren't limited to un- you weren't limited to bitter herbs and a little bit of lamb. You could have anything you wanted as long as it was with unleavened bread. And that was the feast day. The next day, a Sabbath. You weren't. You didn't go to work. You feasted and celebrated your deliverance out of Egypt. There was a killing of the Passover lamb, then a seven-day feast, beginning and ending with Sabbath days. This seven-day feast is called the Passover. 
This seven-day feast is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can refer to the First Supper as the Passover, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the whole thing is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And don't be confused by that. Men are going to want to confuse you and lie to you about that. So turn to Acts chapter 12 and see why I have to chase this rabbit. Acts chapter 12, verse 4. Herod has killed James, the brother of our writer, John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Verse 2 of Acts 12. Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, that's Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. A common question I get is why is there Easter in a King James Bible? What does it mean? Who is celebrating Easter? They're all so confused and it drives me crazy on this point. I love the word Easter there. What does the word Easter mean? All you need to do is read the passage. The word Easter means Passover. In European languages, Easter means Passover. Herod was not out hunting colored eggs on his lawn that were laid by a bunny rabbit. Why would he wait? If that was a pagan festival to his gods, you would think he'd want to kill Peter and offer his blood to his pagan gods. The context tells you what Easter is. It's in verse 3. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And if you go look up the word Easter as it's used by all European languages, including English, it means the Passover. Yes, there is also a meaning to Astarte's day, as you can see in the wording of it. But it's also the Passover. And the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are all the same thing. See, they'll look up the word Easter, they'll find out that it means Passover, and they'll see that then were the days of unleavened bread, so that that meal was already passed, so he couldn't have been waiting... He couldn't have been waiting for Passover to get passed because Passover was already passed and now it was the time of unleavened bread. Blah, 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 blah. Passover equals unleavened bread. Now, for, when, they, when, when they give you a timeline, they tell you that on the 14th you ate the Passover supper, then was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They may have you, if you don't know your Bible, there's lots of references like the one I'm about to show you. But if you look at Ezekiel chapter 45, we can find out that the Holy Spirit thinks that they're synonyms for each other. Ezekiel chapter 45, I am sorry to chase this point, but it says the feast day. The feast day was not the time when they had the Passover lamb. It was the next day when all day long you weren't working because it was a Sabbath. You had to eat unleavened bread, but you could eat anything else and celebrate. And there's verses for that in the Bible. And I'll forego that privilege. Ezekiel 45 and verse 21, In the first month, in the fourteenth day of the month, ye shall have the Passover. What does it say about the Passover in Ezekiel 45, 21? How long does it last? 
seven days. A feast of seven days is the Passover. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. We don't have more time. Back to John chapter 2. I'm sorry. If you knew how many times I have to answer that question, I love the word Easter. I love the word Easter because most people that read it and know that we don't celebrate Easter trip and stumble right over it, but that's the Bible's told me many times that things that are written in the Bible are to cause people to stumble over them and to be taken and to be snared and to fall backward. Just like Jesus did in verses 18 through 22 of this chapter. Many believed in his name. Believing in his name is the same as believing on Jesus Christ. They believed that his name, Jesus of Nazareth, was the name of the Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah because he was performing miracles that only God could perform, that only the Messiah could perform. He was exceptional. They had had no prophet like unto him. John the Baptist never performed a single miracle. John the Baptist was the best they had seen for 400 years. Since Malachi closed out the Old Testament, it had been 400 years. Now there's a man on the scene performing miracles right and left in the great feast day of the Passover. And they believe on his name. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. But that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah did not meet with any love, zeal, passion, repentance, change, or pursuit of him. The Messiah is here. Great. You know, we may be delivered from Rome. Maybe we'll get free food all the time. I won't have to pay my Obamacare premiums anymore because he's going to heal everyone. Those were the junky thoughts going through their minds. Oh, brethren, hold on and just wait for us to get through the Gospel of John. We are going to run into this numerous times. In John chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 and that crowd tried to force him to become their king so that they could have free lunches every day and they said so. And he said, you don't need bread like Moses gave you. Everyone that ate that bread is dead. The bread that I'm going to give you is my life and you'll live forever. And they said, Lord, forevermore give us this bread. All they wanted was a free lunch every day. Jesus kept talking to them about, you need to eat my flesh. You need to drink my blood. The disciples came and said, don't you know that's a hard saying? And you're driving the crowd away. And he gave them a harder saying. We'll see that in John 6. And pretty soon they all turned away and left him. 20,000 people. He had a 20,000 megachurch. And by the time he was done... The number of followers he had would have only taken a small little piece of the choir loft. And he turned to them and he said, Will ye go away also? Jesus was always wanting to separate the true believers from the false believers. And the difference is your actions and your good deeds and the fruitfulness of your faith. Believing on Jesus Christ requires a whole lot more than admission of miracle power. The devils knew all about his miracle power. Intellectual or mental assent that Jesus performing a miracle was the Messiah was not enough. Where's the love of God? Where's the fear of God? Where's the hatred of iniquity? Where is the repentance from sin? Where is the pursuit of righteousness? Where is, Lord, teach me holiness? Lord, increase my faith. There was none of that. And if there isn't very much of that in your life, How in the world should you 
or any of us believe that you are outside of John 2, 23 through 25? On what basis are you outside of these three verses? On what basis am I outside of these three verses? But by a changed life, but by zeal for holiness and righteousness, hatred of the world and its sinfulness, hatred of the world and its people, love for holiness and the people of God. Lord, help us to see the difference. John records that these so-called believers didn't have a clue about Jesus. Now, I just told you about John 6. Look at John 7. John 7. Watch John describe these believers. And many of the people believed on him. I like this word, many. You know how we look at this? We look at the world's population and we say, there's only a few that believe on him. But uh, I, w- I want to correct you. According to the Lord and the Holy Spirit, that few can be called many because the real believers within the many of the few are the few. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, what in the world? You want to call that a believer? When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Jesus of Nazareth, in this case, is quite a miracle doer. I wonder what the Christ is going to be like. But they were believers. John chapter 8, verse 30. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. What word is used in John 2? Many. What word is used in John 7? Many. What word is used in John 8 right here, verse 30? Many. What's the number in John chapter 6? 20,000. Many. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Do we have a break in context between 30 and 31? I don't think so. Can you see that? If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. He did not say to them, I'm so excited today to see many of you become my disciples. He didn't say anything like that. He said, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we be Abraham's seed, we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Did they want to hear the word of God, or did they want to argue about the word of God, and against the word of God, based on their Jewish heritage as the children of Abraham? And Jesus takes about ten more verses To make them want to kill him. And then he tells them what they really were. The children of the devil. Verse 44. It only takes them 11 verses. Okay, back to John 2. Brethren, brethren, join me. Join me. These things all go together. The zeal of God's house hath eaten me up. If the zeal, if your zeal for this local church which is the house of God, eats you up. Are you one of the believers in 23 through 25? Not a chance. They didn't do anything for the house of God. 
If you properly understand verses 18 through 22, that God can hide and withhold understanding and truth and knowledge from you and only give it to a few, and you appreciate that fact and humble yourself before it, are you in verses 23 through 25? Not a chance. If you're wondering if there's a Christ to come after Jesus, not a chance. Are you outside of 23 through 25? You're just like them. This is so important. Would to God that these worshipers of John 3.16 would read the two chapters that come before John 3. Because they would have read in John 1.13 which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is not your will, it is not your faith, it is not your believing that gets you born of God. You're born of God by God's choice against your will and against the will of anyone else. And against your bloodline and ancestry. They would have read these three verses right here and found out that when they quote that verse and they stick it in the end zone of football stadiums, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, I need a B word, whosoever believeth in Him, that many people that believe in Him are not believers in the estimation of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't want to read the Bible. All they want is that little sugar text candy cane of theirs that thinks gets them into heaven. Because they made some little decision for Jesus in some little joy club after school summer daily vacation Bible school and never lived the gospel. A decision for Jesus doesn't save anyone. Look at the many that were believers. Many that were believers. I'm not repeating any more than John and the Holy Spirit. Many that were believers. I'm mad at error. And I'm scared for you. And I'm scared for me. But not very. We want to be consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord. Do you love hospitality? Do you love entertaining? Do you love talking to a brother on a spiritual, personal, intimate level to push them to greater love of Christ? Are you polishing the stones of this house? Are you thankful for the truth that God's given you and you fall on your face and tell them you're not worthy of it? Are you way beyond believing? Do you ever look back at some past belief in your life, some past baptism in your life, and take some comfort from it? Don't! The only thing you can take comfort from is what you're doing right now. You can't commit to the future. You don't even know if you'll have tomorrow. Your past doesn't matter because you could have deceived yourself. What matters right now? And of course, if you had a past like the Apostle Paul, you can appeal to that past. Then you can tell the Lord and you can write to the entire Christian world for 2,000 years, I know that there is a crown of life waiting for me in heaven because I fought a good fight, I kept the faith, and I finished my course. And what was his course? More difficult than all of us put together. Lord, help us. John recorded chief rulers believing on him, but they couldn't leave the synagogue. Because they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. You want to think they all have their names in the book of life? There's no evidence in a Bible for them. 
You know, some of us came out of fatalistic Baptist backgrounds. I didn't. Some of you came out of fatalistic Baptist backgrounds where, you know, as long as somebody grunted on one day something about God, they're just an unconverted elect that is not taught in the Bible. God has his unconverted elect, and they're plainly taught in the Bible. They don't even grunt God. I mean, they can be enemies of the gospel, according to Romans 11.28. And it's by his grace and his mercy. True confession of the Lord Jesus Christ requires the work of the Spirit. It's never the work of the flesh. It's never a work of the mind. It's the work of the Holy Spirit changing us, heart and mind and soul. Real believers do things. We need to repudiate that Arminian false assurance that we get from looking back. I know that in this year of my life, I was pretty zealous for the Lord. I know that I remember that month I was on fire for the Lord. Nobody could be on fire for the Lord unless he was born again. Judas Iscariot was on fire for the Lord three and a half years. Right. You say, how do you know he was on fire for the Lord? Because James, Peter, and John couldn't figure out that he was the one that was going to betray Jesus. We've got to repudiate that. We have to repent right now and examine ourselves. Paul didn't say examine your past. Examine yourselves. Prove your own selves. Is Christ in you? Is Christ in you? If he's not in you, you're a reprobate. This is John. You know, when we get to happy stuff like having a wedding with wine, I preach that. When we get to happy stuff like this, where the Lord Jesus Christ weeds out most believers, I still love it and I still preach it. And I'm always going to preach it with the same intensity, God helping me. Because both are true. Both are part of the revelation of God. And if you are concerned about your eternal destiny, if you are concerned about meeting the judge of all flesh, if you are concerned about giving an account of your life to Him who has the books of your works, and you want to know if your name is in the book of life, which is the only salvation hope you have, then you should want to care, you should care about these three verses and want to understand what it means when it says Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man. He knows that we're a bunch of lying frauds. We're a bunch of hypocrites. You know, we'll, 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 we, we even get tired and frustrated and irritated getting up and getting dressed on Sunday to come to church for five hours. I don't. Many do. Faith without works is dead. Real faith doesn't exist by itself, but you start adding things to it. Second Peter chapter 1, you add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge patience, godliness, temperance, brotherly kindness and charity. And you just keep building up, up, up. Faith is the, faith is the weak one. It's the bottom one. Faith is what devils have. Faith is what all these believers had. Confused, ignorant, mental faith. But what about a faith that there is a God is and God is a rewarder? Right. A rewarder of whom? Those that believe in Him? A rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So if you believe that God is, the God of the Bible is, remember I've told you that when I was 19 years old, God hit me this way to change my life. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years old. 
It was a deep and moving experience for me. I speak as a fool. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years old. But about 19, the Lord confronted me with this. If I am half of what the Bible says of me, how much of your life do I deserve? And He deserves all my life if He's half of what the Bible says. So do you believe that God is? And that God is a rewarder of them that diligently, that's why I'm preaching on zeal, diligently seek Him. It has nothing to do with believing. Except that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. And so Hebrews 11.6 totally changes men's lives. It makes an able absolutely fearless of his older brother Cain and goes and offers a sacrifice totally different from his brother. It makes a a Noah absolutely fearless so that he would build a boat 450 feet long in his backyard when it had never rained on earth. It makes men fearless. And they pursue God against all others, making fun of them and ridiculing them. And it goes on in that chapter to get closer to our own time when it describes martyrs of the last two two millennia, when it describes that this world is not worthy of them. They were torn asunder, cut asunder, burned, fed to lions, and the world was not worthy of such men. Does your life look like that? Where's your big sacrifice of the last 168 hours this past week? Where are the sacrifices, the cost? Where's the cross of Christ that proves you're a real believer? Sincerity doesn't mean a thing to God. The prophets of Baal were sincere. I wrote you yesterday, the nuns of Rome are more sincere than most Christians. Oh, Lord, help us. The the Ethiopian eunuch to Philip the evangelist. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Hear the words. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. The devils fully believed Jesus Christ was the Messiah of God and they worshipped him. The devils knew Jesus. The devils knew the Bible. Did Satan quote the Bible? Did he quote it accurately? Did Jesus rebuke him for having a new version. They know Jesus. They know the Bible. They know his apostles. Jesus I know. Paul I know. They know their reprobation. They know their future torment. And they know Bible prophecy. How close does it get them to heaven? Did you see what I wrote you last evening? I hope you did in the preparatory email. Hearing doesn't mean anything except that you're deceiving yourself. If you come in and you, you hear the truth and you say, that's the truth being taught there. James 1.22 says you've deceived yourself by being a hearer and not a doer of the word. You go over to James chapter 2. Well, I believe it. Well, the devils believe and tremble. How many of you are trembling? Honestly trembling. The devils believe and tremble about the word of God. Then you go to 1 John 2.4. He that saith, I know him. So now we've got a profession of faith. We've got a hearer of the gospel. He comes and sits and warms foam rubber. He's heard it. I've heard the truth. Then he believes it. I believe the truth. Good for you. I know him. 
I know Jesus Christ. I walk with Jesus Christ. What does John say? The disciple of love in 1 John 2, 4. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Serious stuff from the apostle of love. Jesus did not commit himself to them. In verse 24, Jesus didn't attach himself to these so-called believers and encourage them in their false religion. He didn't want to be in their company, stay with them, or teach them anymore. When Jesus previously found true believers, what did he do? Two words, follow me. Some of these believers were seduced by false Christs and killed by Rome. The ones that weren't died before 70 AD. Or a very few were converted later, maybe. We should examine ourselves lest we come short and miss the fullest presence of God for our church, for our families, and for our lives. This is the word of the Lord. Not everyone that says he's a believer is a believer. Not everyone that believes is a believer. Not everyone that thinks he's believing inside is a believer. God knows all men and he tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and I need the last few words of that important verse. Who can know it? Do you know who can't know it? You. The next verse in Jeremiah 17 verse 10 says, I the Lord search the rain in the hearts. Only he knows how deceitful your heart is. Jesus warned Ephesus he would take his Holy Spirit away from them merely for losing their first love, though he had nine commendations for that terrific church. He's serious. He told the church at Laodicea they needed fellowship with him, that they were lukewarm. Even as children of God, we can lose our full benefit. Jesus is going to find a different kind of a believer in the next chapter. Did he commit himself to Nicodemus? Absolutely. He laid wonderful truth on Nicodemus that's some of the rare verses in the Bible. And we are thankful for that. This warning should terrify honest believers for themselves and their church. We want Jesus Christ by his spirit to live in our church. We want to examine ourselves. We persuade men by the terror of the Lord, like the Apostle Paul did. We don't want to rely on, I believed, I made a profession, I was baptized. Is the zeal of his house eating you up right now? Is faith in him changing your life? Are you diligently seeking him who rewards only the diligent seekers? Faith may be an initial step, but love, and that defined by obedience, is greater. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. It's got a little combination of five words that are wonderful. Galatians 5, 6 is against the Jewish legalists who wanted to add circumcision, keeping the law of Moses, to the finished work of Christ. They were corrupting the gospel. Paul had to spend so much of his time combating their errors. I have to spend so much time, you have to spend so much time combating the errors of Arminianism. That is decisional salvation or decisional regeneration. Verse 6, For in Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. Whether you're circumcised or not, religiously it has absolutely no value to God. And so Paul's blasting these Jewish legalists 
that wanted to add circumcision in order to get to heaven to the finished work of Christ. And I love this verse. In Jesus Christ, if you've been chosen in Him, you don't need circumcision. What do you need to show that you're in Christ? But faith, which worketh by love. So if you just have faith, you're just a believer. John 2, John 6, John 7, John 8, John 12. You're just a believer, you ain't got nothing. It's faith which worketh by love. Faith that shows a changed life in doing things for other people out of love of Christ. It works. When you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you've heard these verses so many times, but I repeat myself for your assurance and for you to use them answering other people's question, how can I know I'm one of God's elect? Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. I want to read a passage that has those words in it. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Because those Thessalonians had three things. They had the work of faith in their lives. They had the labor of love. And they had the patience of hope. Their faith worked. It did things for God's glory, the profit of others, the furtherance of His kingdom. They had a labor of love. They just didn't say they loved the brethren. They didn't send text messages, I love you brother. They did things that were costly. And they had patience of hope. They could cheerfully endure the negative things of life. They could cheerfully endure bad things happening to them because of their hope of eternal life. That is a changed life. That's how we know a person is elect. Jesus knows all men. He knew Judas Iscariot had a devil. He was a thief. He knew every cent that he took out of the bag. The greatest testimony to God and man of your eternal life is many good works. One of the top ten outlines on our website is salvation by works. A massive list of verses that connect eternal life to good works. We can't earn our way to heaven. No one ever has. But the only way you can know that Jesus Christ died for you, God elected you, and the Holy Spirit has regenerated you is to show by a changed life through good works that that's true. Only way. So I've compiled this massive list in a document called Salvation by Works. It has verses like this, like Psalm 15. Did any of you read Psalm 15 last night? For those of you that did, you benefited. Psalm 15 is only five verses long, but it lists the character traits of those that end up in heaven. It doesn't say anything about believing on Jesus. Because believing on Jesus should result in a whole lot more because there's a whole lot of people that believed on Jesus. They believed in His name. Matthew 7, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Those people in John 2, 23 through 25 could have said anything they wanted to Jesus. It didn't matter. 
He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Hear these verses. I'm gonna, I want to repeat them over and over again. I've got to move on. I've got to go to some other subject. Right now we've got this right in our face. This is from God. These are his words. Many believers are not believers. Many believers are not saved. Many believers are not elect. For those of us that grew up in other circles, where we saw the many decisions made for Jesus, we know it's true. Because the vast majority of those that made decisions never lived a changed life. And much of the Christian world knows that, that thinks. When men came to John the Baptist, soldiers, publicans, John, what shall we do? Believe on Jesus' name? No. No. Do violence to no man. Be content with your wages. Things like that. The real works of Christian character. See, believing on Jesus is just what gets us started. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But the kind of belief I'm talking about is totally different than these believers. They just had some mental idea. Hey, this Jesus of Nazareth is a pretty great guy. Look at the power he's got. Wow. They believed on him. Yep, he's something special. Sure is. But what about the one that wants to live for him and is willing to die for him? The one that's willing to take his name up even though you might be persecuted for it. The one that's willing to talk about Jesus Christ in the workplace by his name rather than saying God. You know, out there they think that God means Allah or God of the Mormons. It's always distinguishing ourselves by following Jesus and letting him change our lives and him shining through us. When Jesus said about Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this man in his house, was it because he believed? Or was it because he stood and said, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. That's zeal. That's extreme. That's action. That's putting your money where your mouth is. That's the evidence of eternal life. Jesus would recognize it. When he met Nathaniel, did he say, Nathaniel, you need to believe on me? He said, Nathaniel, look at that man. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Because the man lived an unpretentious, open, honest, transparent life. Throughout the Bible, you read Matthew 25. It's those who take strangers in. It's those who feed believers in Christ. Taking any other kind of stranger in, feeding any other kind of person, like at the Greenville Rescue Mission, does not count. You will never hear it mentioned when you stand before Jesus Christ. He was very specific to say, in that ye have done it to the least of these, my brethren. You've done it to me. Very specific. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we have seven churches. And he tells each church 
who among their membership can know they're going to heaven? And he uses one word seven times. It's an O word. Overcomers. Him that overcometh. And he lists some great stuff, doesn't he, Matthew? I remember one time in your Bible reading, you got all worked up about all, if you take all the things of the seven churches that are promised to those that are overcomers, it is one dramatic, wonderful list of things. But look what's in front of it. Believing? No. Being an overcomer. You're going to get persecution. You're going to have temptations of worldly success. You're going to have friends that try to take you away from the full zealous worship of God. You're going to be lazy and want to sleep in instead of doing something for the Lord. You're going to look at your budget instead of looking at the life of someone else. You're going to make financial... No! Be an overcomer! Overcome all these things! And I'll not blot you out of the book of life. Jesus doesn't need any help knowing all of us. You know, it's, it's frightening and it's wonderful all at once. If you're living sinfully, it's frightening because Jesus sees every single thought, motive, and intent of your heart and everything you're doing in thought, word, and deed in private or public. He sees it all. But on the other hand, it's nice knowing that our Savior who sits at the right hand of God also sees every single little tiny gesture of giving 20 bucks to somebody to go have lunch because they're a little disciple of Jesus Christ. He sees that. And you know what? He's going to bring it up again. You know, I write many of you, and I say it in public, that I write it in updates, that when you do something for a brother, you're going to have to hear about it again. I hope you're ready for that. You'll like it in that day. You're going to hear about it again. He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. I love that expression. It's Hebrews 6.10. To forget, when he knows everything, and he sees you, showing a labor of love toward a disciple of his, he remembers it. And he's not unrighteous to forget it. We, forget, we tend to forget. He doesn't. So, when we read, for the word of God is quick and powerful. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful. It's not talking about this. For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do, because we are speaking of the living word of God, not the written word of God, seeing then that we have such a high priest that is passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession of faith, because if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And we want to be his disciples indeed. Let's not change. Let's press forward. Let's show greater zeal. Let's redouble our efforts, not to earn our way to heaven, because he deserves it. Can I go back and tell you how he tapped me on the shoulder when I was 19? If I am half of what the Bible says I am, How much of your life do I deserve? He deserves it all. May Jesus Christ be praised.